Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Since the internet boom of the mid-90s, San Francisco has become a tech superpower. Netflix Incorporated went public at an $82.5 million valuation. Apple uh, above $467.77, making it a $2 trillion market cap. It's a momentous moment. Sergey Brin and Larry Page took Google public. The stock has since surged more than 2,600%. $35 million opens at $42. Uber price $45, $32 million shares opened at $42. It's overtaken Silicon Valley as the place to innovate and carve out that next tech unicorn. Last week, Time Out even named it the best city in the world. But best for who? It is this jewel of the West Coast, but it also has just extreme abject poverty and misery on its streets and tent encampments that you might expect quite literally in the third world. Perhaps all that glitters may not be gold. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Hello. I'm here from Times Radio to sit in for Manveen Rana. Today... San Francisco and the American Nightmare. I am Danny Fortson. I'm the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Um, I've been out here with the paper now almost five years. I grew up in the Bay Area in San Jose, not far from here. Spent many years overseas, mostly in London, and then was sent back out here about four or five years ago to cover the West Coast and the technology industry in particular for the paper. Does it feel like San Francisco has changed dramatically since you were growing up there and even in the last five years since you've been based there? It does. It does. So my kind of initial training in journalism was during the first dot-com boom. I watched the kind of the rise and the spectacular fall all in real time. That was my first job covering all of these companies that were worth billions and then were worth nothing overnight. What is happening now just feels different in that the scale of things, both the wealth and the wealth disparities are just much more dramatic and it, all of this is juxtaposed in this really small city. It's only 800,000 people. It's quite small. Seven miles by seven miles squared, which is just this amazing, at times amazing and heartbreaking city. You know, it's built on seven hills. It hugs the San Francisco Bay. And it's all jammed into this one kind of living contradiction. 
Danny's our tour guide for today. We begin on the Bay Bridge, and in fact, under it. I live in Oakland, which is across the Bay Bridge, and in the middle there is an island, quite literally called Treasure Island, and it connects San Francisco and the East Bay, so Oakland, Berkeley, and all the hills. We have redwoods out here. It's very picturesque on the East Bay. The Bay Bridge itself is this very striking white and gray long suspension bridge that connects San Francisco to the other side of the bay. You come in to San Francisco and it's just this amazing cityscape that you see as you drive in. But what you don't see is that as you're coming on from the East Bay to drive into to San Francisco, there's an enormous encampment that has blossomed right underneath the bridge. I drive over this bridge all the time. I never... Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you would never know. No. Um, there are anywhere from 150 to 300 people living amongst just hundreds of carcasses of cars that have been stolen and burned and stripped. And then in amongst the pylons that are holding up this bridge, you have people. You have broken down RVs, tents, and a whole community that has grown up there. It looks like something you would see out of Mad Max almost. It is what it is, but this is Night of the Living Dead out here. I'm sorry. This is Night of the Living Dead out here. I mean, this foil all over the ground. You drive on this bridge multiple times a week and you never think about it. And then directly below you is just this whole community of people who have just fallen through the cracks and it's just growing and growing. I think that probably goes some way to explaining then why you wanted to look into this and pick apart, I suppose, that extreme disparity that you've, you've kind of touched upon. I'm spending most of my time talking to tech CEOs, founders, people who are out here trying to change the world, etc., and making just extraordinary amounts of money oftentimes while they do it. It's a very optimistic place, sometimes almost naively so, like people setting out to quite literally change the world. And then, you know, you'll drive past these encampments. You see some of these scenes and it's just that juxtaposition of we're going to change the world and we're going to become billionaires while we do it. And then all around you, you have these people who are living on the streets, who are living in these tent encampments. The misery that you see on display day in, day out, and especially I think about this, I have two small children, you know, this is normalized for them. This is what they expect. You know, this is not normal. I'm keen to find out about that looking past each other a bit more because I'm not familiar with San Francisco. Can you put into context where these tech billionaires are compared to where these tent encampments are? Are they on each other's doorsteps? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about San Francisco. It's very small. So kind of everything is on each other's doorsteps. And I want to be clear, there are some people who are doing very well, particularly like, say, Mark Benioff, who is worth many, many billions. He's the founder of Salesforce Tower. He just a few years ago finished building his new headquarters in downtown San Francisco, which is the highest tower west of the Mississippi. He's putting a lot of money into this. People are concerned about this stuff, but it just feels futile. And it does feel that, you know, this is somebody else's problem, that they've got other fish to fry. But the frustration that is building here is palpable in a way that it hasn't been before. The pandemic is contributing to a major homeless crisis in one area of San Francisco. Since January, the number of tents and makeshift structures has exploded by nearly 300% in the Tenderloin neighborhood. 
So I went down to the Tenderloin district today. Since 2019, homicides have risen 30%, burglaries shot up 51%, and the homelessness situation, you can't really describe it, you have to see it. Same thing with drug abuse, rampant. You know, you see people, naked people walking through the street, you see people defecating on the pavement, you see people shooting up drugs into their legs, into their toes, into their necks in broad daylight. Even downtown in the financial district where the Times has an office, you just see these people walking around like kind of zombies. And that's one of the issues is that you have a core of homeless people here. Um, there's about eight to 10,000 people who are living on the street in any given day. About half of them are afflicted by what they call the perilous trifecta of mental illness, drug addiction, and kind of long-term homelessness. They've been on the streets for a long time where the other two issues become worse. It's hard to figure out how you're going to get them off the street. But when you see how they are living and the way they're walking around these streets, it's really, it's quite disturbing, actually. It's very disturbing. I want to find out about some of the people that you've spoken to. Shall we start with Jamal Hilliard? Tell us about him. Yeah, so Jamal, he's quite an amazing guy. So he is 43. He has a one-year-old daughter. He has a, a long-term girlfriend. And he works 80 hours a week. I got a, I got a little baby to look after. Oh, you know. How's your baby? She's one. She's finna be two. What's her name? Jamiria. Jamiria. Yeah. I'll show you a picture of Yeah. Little sweetheart. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's You're going to be running your life for a long time. Oh, she's running it now. <laughs> That's why I go to work for it. Yeah. For the past nine years, he has worked a union job at the San Francisco Giants baseball stadium where he stocks the kitchen. And he also works another full-time job at a kitchen supply warehouse company. So 80 hours a week making a good union level wages. And he is homeless. So, okay, this is how the day starts, Dad. Yeah. 4.15. 4.15. I walk and I walk over to the, to the Giants. I get there about 4.55. I got to start working at 5. Yeah. And the way he became homeless is that he had saved up as much money as he could. He got into a house with his sister, but he had put up all of his extra money for the deposit. They had a dispute, and he ended up without a home. She didn't have no money. I put it up. Yeah. So... I'm living there. Everything was going all right for a minute. Then she figures she wants to be the king of the castle. Okay. So I was like, this is not going to work. And this is why his case is so illustrative is that, you know, you make one wrong move. Your foot slips one rung down off the ladder and you fall. There's not the social safety net like you would have in the UK. So here's a man who was working 80 hours a week who wakes up at 4 a.m., to go to his first job, gets done at one, goes home, sleeps for a couple hours, then goes works another eight-hour shift. He is still living in a homeless shelter in a cramped one room with his wife and his daughter. And all he's trying to do is save up enough money as quickly as possible to actually get his own place. I can't cry over spilled milk. Money's already gone, you know what I'm saying? And I don't want no troubles. I'm, I'm at the point in my life like, Bygones are bygones. So I just go ahead and just move on. That struggle 
I think really illustrates what is happening here because California is the most expensive place to live in America. And it has been exacerbated by just the boom in tech because people can afford to pay outlandish rents and it's pushed all the rents up and it's made it harder for people like Jamal to even get on that first rung on the ladder. Give us an idea of, of some of those numbers, Danny. How, how expensive are we talking? For a typical two-bedroom apartment, the average is $3,800 a month in San Francisco. In certain parts of the city, it's you know seven, eight thousand, nine thousand dollars a month. Um, but that is just just the rent, right? And then it's the groceries are also more expensive here than anywhere else in America. Health insurance, all of these things that might be baked into your taxes or what have you in the UK, they aren't here. JP Morgan did a study a couple of years back that said a quarter or a third of Americans are a $400 emergency away from being homeless. In other words, people are living so on a knife edge, they cannot afford anything to go wrong. Beyond that, then they might end up on the street. They might end up like Jamal. With all of that in mind, how does Jamal view his situation? Clearly, he wants to save up. He wants to get his own place. But how does he view his current life? Does he have optimism like that of the tech billionaires that we mentioned a little while ago? And you described them as being naive. Is he naively optimistic in his context? He's very realistic, I would say. But for somebody in his position, I think he is incredibly positive. It's going to be all right. God has a plan for him. God has plans in his hands. Right. right, right. All I got to do is just keep trying my best and let something will come happen. But he's also a product of this environment. I mean, he's got a few siblings. One of his brothers was murdered. He has friends who are also homeless. He has friends who are also addicted to drugs. In that scale, he could be doing much worse. Now, he wants to be doing much better, but he is also realistic that you got to keep grinding and you got to keep working and hopefully uh, something will break his way. Let's find out more then about the environment of San Francisco and how we kind of got to this point with these extremes on either end, this disparity between people like Jamal and the CEOs uh, that we've been mentioning. How did San Francisco rise initially? You you talked about being there for the first dot-com boom and indeed the first dot-com bust, I suppose. What is San Francisco's story in terms of generating wealth and innovation and, you know, this excitement of technology? I mean, it depends on how far you want to go back, but you can go back into the 50s. You had a few people who started big companies like, you know, the founders of Hewlett and Packard or Fairchild Semiconductor, which led to Intel. You had these kind of early hardware entrepreneurs that started making microchips and generating some wealth. And then alongside that, you had a whole ecosystem of investors, venture capitalists, People who had done well were like, well, if I've done this, I think I can put some of my money to work and make some bets on other people. It started this kind of flywheel of people, investors, entrepreneurs backing each other in this kind of virtuous circle, and it just started to blossom. And then you have a constant influx of new, young, talented people coming to places like Stanford, like Berkeley, and this machine starts. There are people here who have funded people who have indeed changed the world for better or for worse. You know, Mark Zuckerberg came out here as a teenager 
And now his company is worth a trillion dollars and used by half of the planet. That happened in the past 15 years. And you have a lot of stories like that. Like I said, it's a machine that is spitting out startups, most of which will not work. But one in a hundred will change the world. And the person who does that will make a huge fortune. And that is what draws people out here. Is it surprising that these companies that are worth billions, that are popping up left, right and centre, to what extent is it surprising that they don't bring the wider society of San Francisco with them and that this gap, this disparity has appeared? You know, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and they're shooting for the moon. But oftentimes if you're, if you're staring at the moon, you don't notice what's you know, right in front of your face. Writing code and creating an app is way, way easier than going out and talking to people because that means dealing with local governments, that means dealing with physical infrastructure and politics and all of these very, very hard real-world problems that don't live effectively in code. That is a much easier, in many ways, a much easier way to go about solving problems. We'll be back in just a moment. But first... Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. I want to return to the streets now, uh, as it were, and I want to find out about Lou Hammond, um, who you've been speaking to and who you can share some of his story with us as well. Tell us about Lou. What does he get up to? You know, I've been a journalist for 20 plus years. Lou is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Right. I had never seen what I saw, the amount and kind of brazenness of drug taking mm-hmm. and just misery, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I saw a bunch of your colleagues from Urban Alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like, I was just really interested in kind of what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And when I was talking to Lena, she's like, oh, I've got, one of my guys has helped like revive or save like a hundred people or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was like, I need to talk to that person. Okay. They, you, everything you said is, I feel you. I mean, I understand <laughs> that, you know. Uh, He's five, 
tan kind of burly guy. He's got a shaved head, uh, earring, jet black goatee. And he works for a company called Urban Alchemy. It's actually an organization called Urban Alchemy. And they are kind of like community service officers. They are deployed across the hardest, most difficult uh, parts of the city. Like I, said, I mean, uh, you know, the Tenderloin has always mm-hmm. been pretty crazy, but like... Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. It, it, it's... Um, Heart-wrenching, but, too. Yeah. And yeah. Lou, in his previous life, was an extremely violent gang member. And when he was a young man in his early 20s, he, he tried to murder somebody. Premeditated attempted murder of a human being. Shot him nine times, you know, five times standing, four times got over him. Shot him some more, you know, praise God he didn't die. He didn't die. He did not die. He was paralyzed from the neck down. It was, it was pretty serious shots, yeah. And this is a gang thing? It was a gang thing. It was a gang thing. It was money. It was, you know, all that stuff. He was given a life sentence and he went to prison and then he joined a prison gang. And while he was there, the prison gang started attacking the guards. That was kind of one of their operating models. You know, you can make a, a knife with a pa- paper if it's rolled tight enough. All you need is something small like a, um, a staple. Yeah. So, you know, we were hurting some correction officers and they were hurting us. He ended up spending 23 years in prison. He spent 12 years in solitary confinement. And yet when you speak with him now, he got out in... 2017, and trying to figure out what he was going to do. And he started working for this organization, Urban Alchemy, which had just started up. And their goal was to basically go into the most difficult parts of the city and make them a bit more livable. There's these public bathrooms, enclosed public bathrooms that were being used by drug addicts, by prostitutes. It was not a place that anybody would actually want to use. And so Urban Alchemy's first job was to make sure that these were clean, safe and not being misused. What's interesting about Urban Alchemy is that Lou is a typical employee. They seek out long-term offenders. These are people who spent decades in jail because usually they murdered somebody or they tried to. But when they come out, a lot of them have this sense of remorse. They want to help. And they also have street smarts that one can only acquire, you would guess, from being in a supermax prison where around every corner there might be somebody there who wants to kill you or to fight you or do something horrible to you. And Lou started out manning a bathroom. Now he trains a whole army of former long-term offenders who are out there in the streets every day. And these people literally go about saving lives of those who are overdosing, of those who are struggling on the street. One of the things about what is happening in San Francisco right now, in 2020, twice as many people died of drug overdoses than of COVID. The main culprit is a drug called fentanyl. It's an opioid. It's up to 50 times more powerful than heroin, and it is just ravaging the city, the entire Bay Area. So you have people overdosing on the street quite literally every day. And Lou, when I first met him, we exchanged pleasantries, we sat down, and he started telling me his story, and then he handed me his phone and showed me what a typical day is for him. It's a privilege. And, you know, we've had uh, sometimes community members will video it. I can show you some videos of some of the times. uh, And it was him pumping the chest and performing CPR of somebody who was clinically dead on the sidewalk, on the pavement. 
Look, 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 look. He's moving, he's moving. He's breathing, he's breathing. He told me that he has done this 209 times in the past three and a half years. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, go. Guys are rolling back. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. back. Yeah, back. back. Yeah, back. 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 Breathe one more. Breathe one more for him. Just give him one more. Come on, buddy. 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 I believe in giving them mouth to mouth. They say, don't do that because you only need the, pr-. I understand it. I consider that life breath. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend's like, you gotta stop with your mouth to mouth. I said, listen, if you know my history <laughs> and they say at my funeral, well, Louie died from mouth to mouth, I'm gonna take that. <laughs> you know, I had a whole bunch of other shit going on. When you walk around certain parts of the city, there's a place called the Tenderloin where the, the drug dealing and drug abuse is really extraordinary. It's broad daylight. You have people shooting up and smoking and dealing drugs with impunity. That is where he spends his time trying to make sure that there's kids walking down the street, there's families there that, you know, they can clear the street and keep things contained. But yeah, he spends his whole life now saving people's lives. And I'll tell you a quick story that kind of gives us some context. You know, when he said when he was in jail or in prison, rather, he was a hardened criminal, and he said very clearly, all I wanted to do was cause harm and pain to these guards, and we were kind of at war with these guys. And then he said he was being walked to the infirmary one day. He was in waist chains, and he realized his shoelace was untied. He saw a guard walking toward him in the hallway, and he thought this guy was about to do something to him. And the, the guard stopped, kneeled down, tied his shoe, and then just walked off. That, that one incident, a scenario, uh, it, I couldn't forget about it. He didn't change my belief system or the insanity I was living in, but he, he cracked the, the, hmm. the, the glass ceiling of it, you know? He, yeah. he cracked it. He put a nice crack. And when I went back to my cell, uh, I, just, I was like, what the f*** just happened, you hmm. know? One of the first times someone had treated him with humanity that moment stuck with him and it led to a whole multi-year process of reforming his thinking and the way he acted and he eventually left the gang and got out after he showed me a couple of these videos of him saving people's lives he said i'm looking for shoes to tie you know and 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 it's homage to a man i don't know uh i'm looking for some shoes to tie i love that that is absolutely amazing We've heard uh, then about Jamal, who is, you know, doing his best, frankly. He's a product of the environment, as you described it, Danny. We've heard about Lou, who is going about and literally saving people's lives. And we've heard about the billionaires who are so busy shooting for the moon and staring at the moon that they're potentially missing what is right under their nose, what is right in front of them. There is that. And then we also have some billionaires who are simply walking out, who are walking away. Elon Musk springs to mind as somebody who is just bailed out of the area altogether. He has moved to Texas, and then when asked about the state of business in California, well, here's what Mr. Musk had to say. If a team has been winning for too long, they, they do tend to get a little complacent, a little entitled, and then they don't win the championship anymore. So California's been winning for a long time. 
Um, and I think they're taking it for granted a little bit. Is that a result of these problems that we're discussing? Is that part of why people like Elon Musk want to leave? It is. It absolutely is. You know, it's hard to see. It's hard to see every day. And especially because, again, if you go back to just a simple dollars and cents, California is an extremely expensive place to live, especially the Bay Area where, you know, in San Francisco, there are more billionaires per square foot than anywhere else on the planet. There are also more homeless people per square foot than anywhere else in America. California has a state tax on top of the federal rate. 13% state tax, which is by far the most expensive in America. And then you have a lot of people on Twitter, noisy billionaires like to call them, who say, you know what, I'm out of here. This is what Elon Musk did. They're going to places like Texas or to Florida. What they don't mention, of course, is both of those states have zero state income tax. They kind of dress it up more as a virtuous stand against the lack of local governance and some of these more broad societal issues, it's really hard not to get depressed. But there is a ray of hope. You go back 18 months to the pre-pandemic, California had a $50 billion budget deficit, and then everything shut down. They were very aggressive when the pandemic hit, and everybody was like, oh my goodness, we are in really big trouble. The opposite happened. With all these shutdowns, everybody kind of leaned into all the technology that we rely on every day. So what happened is we had a $50 billion budget deficit, and now we have a $75 billion surplus. It's the biggest we've ever had in the state. And then you have a governor who has said, we're going to give $12 billion to the homelessness crisis, which is more than anyone has ever committed. So you do have this ray of hope. You talk to people in the homelessness world, and they say, you know, this is a a once-in-a-generation, once-in-half-a-century opportunity where we have this money and we have a political will and we have, frankly, a public that is fed up with this problem all coming together and hopefully, 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 we can start to see some progress. But the current California governor, Gavin Newsom, might not be long in his post. Today, voters are going to the polls. The governor campaigning to keep his job as his opponents criticize him for imposing heavy restrictions during the pandemic and his handling of issues like the homeless population and immigration. The thing about the recall is there's 40 plus contenders, let's call them. But what's uniquely Californian about all of this is since he's been in office, there's been half a dozen recall attempts. The reason this one actually went through was because of the pandemic. One, we were under, you know, lockdown orders and strict masking mandates, etc. And he was pictured at a very, very exclusive restaurant in wine country inside unmasked. Tonight, while Governor Newsom is telling all of us to have Thanksgiving dinner outside, he's facing some new fallout for that fancy birthday dinner party he went to at the French Laundry. Overnight, hundreds of thousands of the signatures you need to get a recall on the ballot rushed in. People were very, very angry. That is why it made it to the ballot. But the other kind of quirk of this is it's a yes or no question. Should Gavin Newsom be recalled? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then whoever of those 40 wins, even if that winner gets 5%, they're the next governor. So it is completely wackadoodle kind of system, but you know, this is this is California. <laughs>
Now, I know that you were trying to temper our optimism a minute ago, but I do want to return to Jamal. Where is he at? Just give me, just open the door a little bit so I can walk through it. You know, just a little bit so I can walk through it. Yeah. You know, and after that, I, I, I'm all right. He called me while I was on holiday and he said, hey, I have some news. I haven't told anybody else. He had applied to a subsidized housing program two years ago. They finally just called back completely unexpected and said, we've got a spot for you, for him, his wife, and his baby. Now it's a one bedroom, but he said, you know, basically since I've talked to you, <laughs> great things have started to happen. I think you're a blessing. And now, of course, I, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that, but it was an amazing kind of moment where he's just like, you know, ah, it's not hopeless. But he was just, he was so excited and he's, he's one of those people you're rooting for. Do you think Jamal or CEOs of tech companies that you speak to, who embodies the American dream more? I think they both do. I think it's two sides of the same coin. If you make it, you can quite literally change the world, impact the world and make gobs of money. But the other end of that coin is if you fall... There's no one there to catch you. There's just very hard edges here. And I feel like Jamal on one end and a Mark Zuckerberg or a Mark Benioff or an Elon Musk on the other, only in America, as they say. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the wonderful subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Kyla McDonald. My guest today was Sunday Times West Coast correspondent Danny Fortson. You can read all of Danny's work at thetimes.co.uk or indeed in print on Sundays. The producer was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer today was James Shield and sound design was by Vulcan Kizzeltug. And by the way, while I've got you, I just want to give you a warm invitation to join the Times Radio Early Breakfast Club with me weekdays from 5am. If you don't already get up that early, now is a great time to start. It's only 5am. It's not that bad, believe me. You can join me on weekdays for your essential news, sport and business briefing. It sets you up just right for the day ahead. So go and find Times Radio on DAB, on your smart speaker or online at times.radio. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 